0: better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. shopify.com slash work.
1: You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Patrick Lane, a digital editor at The Economist. Coming up on the show, America's Federal Reserve seems to believe that the country's burst of inflation is merely transitory.
2: But could it be more lasting than expected? I think a lot of people are questioning the Federal Reserve right now. I mean, it may turn out to be right. But on the other hand, many people believe it won't turn out to be right. And some of the biggest winners from lockdown were streaming
1: services. Our media editor, Tom Wainwright, speaks with the CEO of Twitch about the
0: company's prospects as things loosen up. Well, I think right now we're losing to the park. So maybe like, I don't know, frisbee or, or basketball.
3: But first, Didi
1: Chu sing the company that owns China's leading ride-sharing app, is expected to float on one of America's stock markets next month. The initial public offering is likely to be one of the biggest in the world this year, with Didi valued at as much as $100 billion and raising perhaps $10 billion. But an IPO isn't always plain sailing. Last year, another Chinese company, Ant Group, that's a huge financial technology firm, cancelled what would have been the largest IPO ever on the Shanghai and Hong Kong stock exchanges there were rumours that it was halted by the Chinese president himself. So is Didi's deal going to be different? Didi has come to dominate the Chinese rideshare market, seeing off Uber along the way. It has plans to do much more at home and abroad, but it is sure to run into competition and like similar companies everywhere, it will have to navigate an increasingly tricky regulatory environment.
4: China's rideshare market is simply put massive. And a lot of that has to do with the size of Chinese cities. That in itself has led to a lot of good performance for Didi. Don Wineland is The Economist's China business and finance editor. There's other factors that add into this as well. So owning a private car is not as easy as it is in other developed markets. There's restrictions on license plates, and there's a lot of demand for ride-hailing apps. That's brought down prices, and it's overall been a big hit for the Chinese transportation market.
1: Don, many well-known ride-hailing apps around the world don't make money, but is Didi faring any better in its home market?
4: So Didi's core ride-hailing business is actually doing quite well. It is profitable. A lot of that comes down to its, its market position. It is by far the largest uh, ride-hailing app. There are a number of other smaller companies that are competing, but Didi dominates the market. And a lot of that has come through fierce competition. So when when Didi started, it was up against another company. These two companies went at it for about a year and then Didi swallowed up that other company. It also competed head on with Uber in the Chinese market for quite a while and, and essentially took over Uber as well in China. So at this point, it's doing quite well. So its
1: next step during the next few weeks is an IPO. And it's kind of interesting that the IPO is in New York, I guess. But how much is it hoping to raise? And what will it do with the money?
4: We don't know exactly how much Didi will raise. It's looking probably at a valuation somewhere between $70 billion and a $100 billion, making it a global unicorn at this point. It could raise up to $10 billion. So that would make it one of the biggest ipos of the year if not if not the biggest what it plans to do with the money its main objective is to invest in its own technology capabilities which there are many so it's developing its own electric vehicles autonomous driving technologies so a lot of the proceeds from the ipo will go into that it has other businesses as well including international businesses so It says that about 30% of the proceeds will go into its international markets. It has quite a few outside of China. It's in 13 markets um, other than China. It'll also look to develop some of its other businesses. So it has a, a, a large range of businesses such as lending, insurance, broking. It also delivers food. It does some types of logistics. So I think we'll also see it expand that type of its business.
1: Now, rideshare companies and tech giants, and of course Didi thinks of itself as both, are running into regulatory difficulty in several countries and not least in China. So how are the communist authorities reacting to Didi's success as it grows and spreads?
4: I think when we think about Didi we can think about it from the perspective of a, of a ride-hailing company, and then we can also think of it, about it from the perspective of a, of a tech giant. And it really, it's both. So it faces all of the same difficulties that any other ride-hailing company faces. Safety problems, I would argue that it's doing decently and has responded to a lot of the problems. As a tech giant, I would say it has a lot more problems. It already is a lender in China. It's an insurance broker. It really wants to become a super app like many of its peers, such as Alibaba or Tencent. And I I think that's an area that will most likely give it bigger problems. So it's already been hit by some antitrust investigations. And in, in that sense, I think the regulators view it very much like they do Alibaba or Tencent. And of course. Many listeners will recall that um, Ant Group's IPO was, was canned uh, late last year because of problems around its its lending activities. How far do Didi's Dee ambitions extend and, and what sort of barriers are they going to run into? I think it has huge ambitions overseas. It's planning on investing a lot of money after the IPO into its international markets. Its international businesses at this point are not profitable some investors that i've spoken with see it as a drag on the business actually and i think there are investors that would prefer to see the company just stick to the china market which is one that it knows very well and it has a you know a very strong advantage there but that isn't really where the company's going i i, I do believe the company is going to try to develop overseas and it will run into competition from all the other companies whether it's grab in southeast asia or Uber in other markets. I don't think that's going to be as easy of a battle as it was in China.
1: And the IPO is intended to give it another push down the road towards achieving those ambitions.
4: A lot of these companies, they've raised a lot of money and they've often subsidized a lot of their customer acquisition by, you know, lowering the cost of the rides. I mean, this will give it more cash to burn in that respect if it's looking to acquire customers overseas, whether or not, it will eventually beat out Uber or Grab, say, in, in other markets as yet to be seen. Don Wineland, thank you very much. Thank you.
1: Starting in 2017, Didi raised billions of dollars from Japan's SoftBank, which now owns one-fifth of the company. In this week's Economist, you can read about the startling comeback of SoftBank, which nearly tumbled in early 2020. Its recovery is in full swing, but some flaws remain. Search for Hard Truths about SoftBank. We'll have more on that story in next week's Money Talks. And for a special subscription offer to The Economist, head to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes.
0: Ready to pop the question? Next.
1: As economies start to open up after the pandemic, a long-forgotten problem has started to rear its head. Inflation. In America, the annual consumer price inflation rate hit 5% in May. That's the highest since 2008. And in Britain, inflation has reached 2.1%. That's just above the Bank of England's target. Some see a short period of inflation as inevitable after Covid and possibly even a good thing. It can reduce borrowing costs and tends to go hand in hand with lower unemployment and many governments see it as transitory but some economists are worried that if inflation proves persistent it could have damaging consequences for those on fixed incomes like pensioners whose purchasing power will be reduced. So is inflation here to stay and how will companies deal
2: with it? I think most business executives, if they were being honest, would say inflation was a hell of a lot higher than it appears in the official government statistics. Tom Easton is The Economist's American business editor. The American government has dumped a tremendous amount of money into the economy, and it's given a lot of incentives for people to do perverse things like not work. So you have both problems with production and you have an increase in demand, and that has just inevitably increased prices. All across the board. Where specifically is the spike in inflation showing up? So I spoke to a guy, William Berkeley, who started his company in the 1960s. And he's seen in areas like a home replacement price has gone up 20% in the past year. So if you insure homes and there's a fire, you're on the loan for the replacement value of of it. and, And it's just dramatically higher than it was when the person took out the policy before. So he's been raising prices. He began last summer when the stimulus began. And one of the more remarkable aspects about the increased prices is that he hasn't been getting any pushback from agents. And that's what I've been hearing from all the business executives that I spoke to. I spoke to a furniture production guy in North Carolina, and he's seen more price increases than he's ever seen before. I mean, resin prices just going up something like 75% or 85%. Upholsterers are saying foam isn't available at any price. But the only thing that's making it feasible for him is that he's been giving price increases on his products and there's been no pushback whatsoever from buyers. So that's how it's affecting the cost of goods, but are we seeing similar inflation in the costs of labour? There's been a survey by Bank of America on uh, labour prices that was quite interesting. It said that manufacturers were raising their wages by 4%, but the survey said that if you change jobs between manufacturers, your salary goes up 13%. That's dramatically more. And even with those increases, the manufacturers can't find laborers. And that's true for my North Carolina furniture manufacturer, too. He places ads, gets rare responses, and then people don't even show up for interviews. I mean, it's never been so hard for him to attract labor before. That's the mysterious thing about inflation is that it it circles and it's insidious and it goes into the areas where people just never really anticipated for them to be. And then you find them in even more.
1: But won't the control
2: of COVID help the picture
1: as people begin to go about their normal business again?
2: So a lot of the things that are difficult to get will be available in abundance in the months to come. But there are a lot of other things. Prices are rising. And once price starts rising, sometimes it can be a self-reinforcing process. And, you know, a lot of inflation is about expectations. You're like the insurance guy. And if you think prices are going up, you have to price in anticipation of those prices going up. And then the inflation keeps going.
1: Tom, with this, there's a there's a demand side element and there's a supply side element. I guess the demand side is reasonably easily explained, even if it wasn't expected. Namely that people have got stimulus checks, they haven't been spending money. There's a lot of pent up demand. What's causing these bottlenecks on the supply side? What, what have businesses you've been talking to been
2: telling you about the causes of those supply shortages? I think a lot of big businesses have been reluctant to be fully candid because they attribute many aspects of this inflation to the government spending programs, but they could be a beneficiary of those programs with large contracts. And the last thing they wanna do is criticize an administration and find that they're not getting the subsequent contracts. But in the very end of an earnings call, the head of Honeywell, that's America's most highly valued industrial conglomerate, was asked a question about inflation. He said, it's here, it's more pronounced than people think. And then he went on to list products like ethylene and steel and just the bedrock components of an economy. I mean, really boring stuff that are all up in price. So it's hard to find a product that isn't more expensive now than it was a couple months ago. And again, once they become more expensive, everything else becomes more expensive. I mean, if you're making steel, your iron ore is more expensive, your coal is more expensive. In America, we're having a lot of regulations on energy production at the same time as people want ever more energy because they've started to travel again. That increases manufacturing costs. The energy prices will also have an impact on the production of, for instance, things like chemicals or things like aluminum, which is very energy intensive. China's obviously playing a big role about this too. It's not clear that China is producing in the way it was producing before. But basically, every little link in this very, very complicated chain has areas that have become more costly, and they all add up. And what about the the Federal Reserve? Because, of course, part of its job is to keep an eye on inflation and make sure it doesn't get out of hand. So far, it doesn't seem too worried by this. Yeah, so the Federal Reserve, I guess, resorts to two explanations. One is base effects, which is things are inevitably more expensive this year than they were during the COVID shutdown. Secondly, maybe bottlenecks that will resolve themselves. And both of those things are quite true. But I think a lot of people are questioning the Federal Reserve right now. I mean, it may turn out to be right, but on the other hand, many people believe it won't turn out to be right. I mean, we could be at a pivotal moment. I've covered many countries that have had inflation and most countries, when they have it, the people who run it, deny it's going to be a persistent problem. The only country that I ever covered where that was not the case was China. So the Fed's not too worried, but businesses themselves, they have to cope
1: with this increase in input prices. They can't keep passing it on to consumers
2: forever. So how are they dealing with it? Their concerns are more direct. They are paying more for things. And their first response has been to charge more. There are other responses that they could make, and they're thinking about those too. Automate more or move stuff to cheaper locations. And people I talk to say the companies are automating more. I mean, if you go to a hotel in America, you'll see these automated vacuum cleaners all over the place that are increasingly popular. You know, That's one less person you need to clean the floors. And, and hotels are all scrambling to try to get people to work for them. During COVID, one of the interesting innovations is that people were ordering food by scanning QR codes rather than talking to a server. You know, many people think that that will continue. I think that every CEO knows right now that today's decision might not seem so consequential because they can pass the prices on, but that's not going to continue forever. And fundamental questions they make about the structure of their business, well, those may determine their tenure. And I think you're just going to read more and more about that in the months to come. Tom Easton, thank you very much. Thanks, Patrick. It's always great to be able to talk to you.
1: Finally... (laughs) Were you ever told you'll never make money playing video games? Well this advice may have to be revised because some gamers are making a lot of money on Twitch. Twitch is a live streaming platform used mainly by younger people. Users log in to interact with streamers as they play and chat through games like Fortnite or Minecraft. Some streamers have thousands of followers and use subscriptions to monetize their play. Typically, fans will pay $5 or $10 a month, and for this, they receive exclusive perks from the streamers. The site was boosted by lockdowns, and it entertained an audience of nearly 15 million daily users.
0: I think more importantly than entertainment, we were offering community. We say on Twitch that you come to watch the video, but you stay to participate in the chat.
1: Emmett Shear, Twitch's CEO, spoke with The Economist's media editor, Tom Wainwright, about how Twitch has performed as a business over the last year.
0: We've experienced a huge amount of growth during the year. A number of new people coming and just a lot more hours of consumption. Um, Although the primary thing has been more people. We didn't find that people who were already using Twitch a lot used it more, maybe a little bit. But the main thing we found was that a lot of new people started using Twitch. And that was gratifying to see that we could serve that need.
3: So I guess the obvious question is now that lockdowns are lifting, do you risk losing all those new viewers now that they're allowed to go out and go back to doing all the fun stuff that they used to be doing?
0: I think that there's always a risk of people leaving the service, you know, if we're not meeting a need that they they have anymore. However, what we've seen is a decline in hours watched per person. We haven't seen a increase in churn rates particularly. We have not seen people leave more. That makes sense. I'm sure that we'll see some of that, but we haven't seen anything en masse.
3: Where do you think they're going? Who are your main rivals, whether that's other streamers or other media?
0: Well, I think right now they're going outside. So maybe like, I don't know, frisbee or or basketball. I don't know if that's the spirit of the question, but I hope we're losing to the park. Generally speaking, I think we compete with most entertainment options. I don't think people think of themselves as distributing live streaming video watch time in their schedule. I think people think about where am I going to get entertainment? Where am I going to get connection? I will say that I think Twitch is often a service that you use to chill out. Um, It's a service people use where they're hanging out with their friends. You're not watching the most tightly plotted drama. You're in something that's easier to dip in and dip out of, something where you're hanging out with a streamer that you really like, with people you care about, who you're talking to. I think the main thing is Do people like it, and do they find it fun for their time? And I think a
3: lot of your viewers are members of Generation Z or or Gen Z. Um, We're still kind of finding out about these guys' viewing habits, but is there anything about their media consumption that is different from previous generations? Anything that stands out about them, do you think?
0: We don't see that younger people on Twitch consume it in a radically different way than older people on Twitch. They spend less money, but that's not surprising. They're younger, and they probably have less money. I'm sure that as they get older, they'll probably spend more. They watch different games in different categories, which is again unsurprising, because they play different games in different categories, and they're watching the games they play. Older people tend to have a lot of nostalgia and watch a lot of the games that were popular 15 years ago. Like, that's me, right? I'm 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 uh, just turned 38. I tend to watch you know games that were popular in the early 2000s. Um, That's not what someone who was born in the early 2000s is going to do. What's your favorite? My favorite games to watch include uh, Magic the Gathering still. I love that. Some of the old Blizzard games like StarCraft. I was really into StarCraft back in the day.
3: You've got millions of people streaming live to a mostly young audience. How do you moderate the content? How can you promise viewers and perhaps viewers' parents that they're not going to watch something inappropriate?
0: Um, I think one of the things that's most important to understand about Twitch is we don't have the problem with viral content. Because Twitch is live content doesn't go viral in the same way. And it's not because there's something magic we've done, that's because the moment, the really cool viral moment, you're either there for it or you're not. And if you're not there for it, you missed it. You can't have a new customer upload some random clip, literally no one will probably see that if you've streamed for 30 seconds at random on Twitch. You have to be on for a while. And so our focus is instead of moderating individual moments of content, which is not the way that Twitch works, it's on moderating streams broadly, And I think we're very effective at that. I think we've got really good systems for reporting so that viewers can send in streams if we miss them. We've got proactive detection systems. And then we've got a really responsive trust and safety and online community guidelines team that very rapidly can respond to those. So I'm I'm actually quite proud of the work we've done on that front.
3: As you say, the fact that it's all live means that it's very difficult for things to go viral, but it also means that you can't check things before they go out. So you, you, you have no control over what people are saying on your platform, really.
0: I think it's all about risk. And the truth is that TV stations don't have any control over what goes out when they do a live stream. And yet they, they do because they, they know who's producing it. They know that this person isn't going to go suddenly put hate speech uh, on the stream.
3: Now you rely on amateur creators to provide the content on, on your platform. Why should they make content for Twitch and not say YouTube or TikTok or any one of the other multiplying numbers of competitors?
0: Yeah, I mean, streamers are our number one customer. Streamers are the people we have to convince to use Twitch. I'm not sure that I would categorize our streamers as amateur in general. If you look at the larger streamers, the streamers who have, say, like, you know, three or more viewers, uh, almost all of them are earning money doing it, which I think is the definition of professional. It's pro and semi-pro. Not everyone's making it a career, but many of them are making it a career, actually, at the high end. Um, And so I think they should choose us for the same reason that you choose any career or anything that you want to do or you can earn money doing it and you should look at the services that you can push your content to and you really do have a choice of services to push your content to like there's no trap that keeps you into one or the other you should choose the one that's going to give you the best deal and i really think twitch provides the best deal for streamers
3: so how much do you spend on this content per year
0: we have a standard revenue share deal with our streamers and uh, we don't disclose you know total revenue numbers or total revenue earned but it works, it works pretty well for a lot of our streamers. I think pretty demonstrably since they continue to choose to stream with us.
3: Do you think the greater competition will increase the amount that these creators can expect to earn? You go back a few years and doing videos online wasn't really a way to make a living. These days, as you say, some professionals can make quite a lot. Do you think that things are going to be forced upwards as more of these platforms proliferate?
0: I, I really hope so. I think that our our goal is always to... Uh, keep up with the divinely incontent streamer. They're very happy when we produce something new for them that, that makes their life better and within one year everyone's forgotten that's a new thing and they want the next new thing which is great but that's our, our job is to keep making it better and I have no doubt that in five years what we enable you to do will be better in so many ways. Um, we'll make, let you earn more money, we'll help you grow a bigger audience, we'll make interactions with your audience more fun. If there isn't a rising tide there I'd be very disappointed and I I just think stuff we already have in the works is going to be good there. So I'm looking forward to it.
3: Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks, Tom. That was Emmett Shear of Twitch talking
1: to Tom Wainwright. And that's it for this week on Money Talks. Please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, too, to our producer, Rory Galloway, and our editor, Sandra Schmoorley. I'm Patrick Lane, and in London, this is The Economist.